that's why prices are where they are as it relates to energy. Your utility bill, that's going up. It's because of the price of coal. Why is coal so high? Why is natural gas rising? Because they are diverting uh, capital away from that. And in the banking industry, there are outright prohibitions on lending to the coal industry. Welcome back to The Kevin Roberts Show. If this is, what, the 15th, 20th time you have tuned in, either watching or listening, thanks for making the show possible. As you know, each week we host a guest who you probably heard about, but maybe you need to know some more details about. This week's guest, let me assure you, this week's guest is at the top of that list. State Treasurer Riley Moore of West Virginia is one of the visionaries, not just of the conservative movement, but of America right now. And Treasurer? It's great to have you here. Thanks, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. So from this point forward, I'll call you Riley, but I just want everyone to know you are the state treasurer of West Virginia. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I have many highlights in my first several months here as president of the Heritage Foundation. And I mean this genuinely. Establishing a genuine friendship with you is one of them. Oh, thank you so very much. And certainly been one of the highlights of my uh, short tenure in the office, being able to establish a friendship with you as well. You've been uh very gracious, and uh, it's been so great to be able to be a part of uh, Heritage Foundation's uh, work and be able to speak with you all on the issues that we're dealing with. Well, that's kind of you. We're going to get into the issue that has put you in the news, not just nationally, but internationally, and that is making sure that you, given your fiduciary responsibility on behalf of the people of West Virginia, have to ensuring that politics doesn't get into investments. And so I think someone can be anywhere in the planet on the planet and be really grateful for what you did. We'll get into that. We're going to get into your bio, which is kind of a quintessential American dream story. And then we want to talk about policy, a little bit about the conservative movement. You even served 10 years on the U.S. House Foreign Affairs Committee as a staffer. So you can talk about foreign policy. All of that to say this. Earlier this week, I, I do what I usually do, which is spend as little time in Washington, D.C. as possible. <laughs> and I was both in my native state of Louisiana at the school that I started, John Paul the Great Academy, and in my adopted state of Texas. And in both places, people said, Kevin, we're enjoying listening to your show. You know, so I had that moment of thinking, man, I'm pretty good. They said, oh, no, no, it's not you. It's the guests. Yeah. <laughs> and, which, and they're right about that. And, and their point was. You have found this way to get guests that we, we've heard about and we know that they're doing something important, but we haven't really taken the time to learn about why they are important to our beliefs. And I said, wait until the next guest, the state treasurer of West Virginia. And the reason I said that is even before you and I met personally, even before I was at the Heritage Foundation, you hit the news by taking on a really big issue. And that is this concept of environmental social governance investing, which for you as a state treasurer, especially given the state that where you serve and live, it's a, a huge problem. And so I just want to pitch that ball to you, let you take that however you would like. But maybe for members of the audience who are not as familiar with ESG investing or that that concept as you and I are, explain the problem, especially if you're just an individual taxpayer in West Virginia or California or New York or Texas. Well, thank you, Kevin. And really how this all began was you had this concept called socially responsible investing, right? Where people were able to pick kind of the investments that they wanted to be in as it relates to kind of their beliefs and their values. Uh, many times that was some investment vehicle that 
may not be uh, pro Second Amendment or it might be pro choice or things like that. And so the, the difference there is that the individual had agency and the ability to go where they wanted and invest their money in uh, securities that represented their values, which that's fine if you want to do that. I don't think that's probably fiscally uh, responsible, but good for you. Now we're in a place with ESG where they are, and what I'm calling coercive capitalism, where they are forcing all of us, and really this is economic extortion what's happening uh, in many instances, to all invest in what has been deemed socially responsible, what's good for the environment, uh, good governance as it relates to corporate boards, the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion agenda that's out there. They are setting the standards and the they in that sentence are these asset managers on the one side. It's the biggest banks uh, in the country are also setting that agenda. And then we have the Biden administration also uh, chiming in now with these SEC rules, all telling us, uh, and I'll speak to the E because it's so important to West Virginia, um, fossil fuels are bad. They're destroying the world. We have to get away from them. And so they are steering capital away from these critical industries that power our, our country. And you want to know why we're in a crisis as it relates to gas? That is why, because they have downgraded companies that uh, do oil exploration and uh, production and refinery. And so the money is not there to capitalize further exploration. The regulations are in place because of the ESG uh, woke agenda that's come out of this administration that prevents them from further exploration. So you really have a fight here on three fronts with ESG. Uh, it's in our economy. Uh, it's in our uh, government and it's in our culture. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where we're fighting is on all three of these fronts as it relates to ESG. But that's why prices are where they are as it relates to energy. Your utility bill, that's going up. It's because of the price of coal. Why is coal so high? Why is natural gas rising? Because they are diverting uh, capital away from that. And in the banking industry, there are outright prohibitions on lending to the coal industry. Uh, there are restrictions on lending to oil and gas. And then you have the asset managers that are scoring all of these companies and diverting capital to these ESG ETF funds, for example, which, by the way, uh, the administrative fees around that are usually double what a large cap S&P 500 would be. And so they are playing with your money. It's your money because these are your 401ks or your pension funds, but you're paying for this little social experiment that is, in my view, set on destroying the country. That's really well explained, not that you have to hear that from me, but for what it's worth, it is, because there's so much to this problem that it's hard to pack a summary into a couple of minutes, as you just did, but you did a great job. I have both a big picture question as well as kind of a micro level question, but the big quick big picture question first, say, and it's a little bit of a devil's advocate question. Say someone's listening to this or watching this, or they see one of your, your other media interviews and they say, well, that sounds like it's important to West Virginia, but I'm in XYZ state, Colorado, Mississippi, Connecticut. Surely it can't be as important. 
What, what's your response? It's sort of the so what question, right? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about energy specifically, uh, what I would say on that, uh, that affects everybody in the country. So energy prices going up affects everyone. If you want to know why food prices are going up because it's transported on trucks and the price of fuel is going up. I'll give you a great example um, in Europe where you've seen countries go to 20% renewable energy or more. You've seen utility bills increase by 100%. Uh, not to mention uh, the situation that's happening on the border of Eastern Europe in Ukraine, where Germany, which got rid of all of their extractive industries, but were still importing coal and gas, 50% of their coal and gas from Germany are in a very precarious situation right now because they do not have energy security, which is actually what we need in this country. Energy security, I believe, is American security. So as we have President Biden running around asking dictators and despots around the world for oil, such as Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, and now he's even talking to Iran, who is certainly our enemy, we're going down that same road that the Europeans have been. We don't need to get to the cul-de-sac to figure out we're in a bad neighborhood uh, necessarily on that. So I, I think it's we need to do a U-turn on this and get on the uh, freeway to energy independence and freedom for this country because the price is going to be paid by the consumer. The consumer is going to pay that. The price in your retirement uh, as it relates to administrative fees, you are paying that. BlackRock, for instance, they're playing with your money um, as it relates to this ESG uh, agenda that they are pushing forward, which many people are probably not even aware that you're in these ESG funds because your fund manager is just dealing with that for you. So it's the end of the day, this is all going to be paid by the working class uh, Americans and your everyday uh family are, are going to have to foot the bill for uh, this left-wing agenda. So big picture, number one, it costs us all money. It doesn't matter who we are. It costs us money in, in a couple of ways that I can think about. The The second is we haven't even gotten into the other aspects of the ESG concept, which is this left-wing agenda. And the third thing is just an utter lack of transparency. I mean, I, I think about some of the analysis that here at Heritage we've done of BlackRock's tactics. And I guess the most charitable, best case way I could put it is it's less than transparent, right. which, which brings me to the kind of micro level question. Prior to being the state treasurer of West Virginia, you served in the legislature, the House of Delegates there. And I'm curious, was it then when you were in the legislature or was it after you were elected to your current office that you realized the extent of the problem this was for West Virginia and for that matter for the country? So for West Virginia, you got to remember back in the Obama administration, we went through the war on coal and uh, there's different numbers out there on this, but we do believe collectively direct and indirect uh, jobs as it relates to the coal mining industry just in the state of West Virginia, we lost nearly 30,000 jobs. So we were very affected uh, by this agenda. They tried to do that through regulation. This is the end around, right? Because we're kind of outside of that because it's this collusion in between corporate and left-wing power 
that has tried to push this agenda now. Now you certainly do see these SEC rules that are coming down too, which I think is completely outside of the bounds of what they should be doing. But soon as I was elected, which was the same time, unfortunately, Biden was elected, is I had coal operators and gas companies coming to me and saying, Riley, we're losing access to capital. The folks who are financing our operations are going to cut us off based on the industries that we undertake here uh, in the state of West Virginia. And that's where I got to work and said, I have to do something. I've got to do something. This is an existential threat to our state, to our economy, to our families. Uh, we reap hundreds of millions of dollars in severance tax every year. It's a big part of our budget um, from coal and gas. So I got to work right away and tried to figure out how to fight back against this. And how's that gone? I mean, do you, do you think in the the time that you've been in office, when you have been very outspoken about this, this the <clears throat> discrete steps you've taken along the way, and, and I'll ask you to speak about those to the extent you can. Do you sense or, or do you believe that we're beginning to turn a corner on this? Do, can you see discernible progress? I do. I, I really do see discernible progress. And what uh, first action that I took was in May. I got I started a coalition of 15 states to write a letter to the Biden administration because they're behind so this is May of 21. May of 21. Okay. And this is where, you know, I'm sounding alarms and people think I'm wearing a tinfoil hat because they, they haven't really been. They really did. Yeah. I, mean, I, I remember defending you. We had never met. Heck, we weren't even connected on Twitter. And I said, this guy knows what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had a lot of people like, what in the hell are you talking about? <laughs> um, but we sent this letter because you had John Kerry out there pressuring a lot of these asset managers and financial institutions to uh, implement ESG. So we sent a letter to the administration as a warning, if you continue to go down this path, we are going to take action. And we carbon copied a number of the financial institutions, uh, the largest ones in the country. And I am somebody who I, I think too many politicians just talk and there's no action behind that. And for me, that's been a mantra of mine ever since I've been in public office. I am going to do what I say. And uh, that 15-state coalition, the next letter went out to uh, some of the largest financial institutions and uh, also to um, members of Congress and the administration saying, we are all going to reform our banking contracts to say, if you're boycotting the fossil fuel industry, you are not going to be able to do business with us. You have to tell us that you are not doing that. And that was in November of last year. Subsequent to that, uh, in January of this year, uh, we terminated our relationship with BlackRock and the West Virginia State Treasury. So we are not dealing with BlackRock at all in the West Virginia State Treasury, which then that caused some waves. And then that was on the back of legislation that I had introduced in the legislature that passed and was signed into a law by the governor, which allows me to create a denied financial institution list. And just two weeks ago, we sent out letters uh, to six financial institutions to say, you are going to be put on this list unless you appeal. They have a 30-day appeal period. We will review that. And then we will make a determination who is on that list. If they are on that list, they are barred from bidding on any financial service contract uh, with the state government of West Virginia, uh, unless they want to change the way that they're going to do things. And for us, it, look, we have a clear conflict of interest. If we're handing dollars over to a, 
a bank, let's say, that's trying to diminish those dollars at the exact same time, there's a conflict of interest there. So using the word interest again, we felt like we had a compelling interest to do something there. And so we met that compelling interest with this legislation. And look, the flippant way to say it is we're not going to pay them to destroy our industries, which was essentially what it felt like we were doing. It's really not an overstatement when you think about it. I mean, when you're talking about giving them the money of the people of West Virginia, those capital houses, those investment firms really did want to devalue that money almost immediately by virtue of what they were going to invest in and not, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, actually, this is not an overstatement. I just want to say that for you. Yes, no, exactly. And one of the things I, I do want to make very clear here is that as a state treasurer, I am not a market regulator. I do not regulate the market. This is not a regulation on these. What I am is a market participant on behalf of the taxpayers of West Virginia. And what I am doing is stating our preferences in the marketplace. Just like with any other contract that's out there, there's provisos in it. And if you can meet those provisos, uh, you can compete for that uh, contract. That's what we're doing here. This is a free market solution to this. And, you know, we've had a lot of financial institutions come and speak to me, uh, you know, behind closed doors and actually even change some of their policy frameworks and amend those to take a softer tone as it relates to an outright prohibition of the fossil fuel industry. And many of my colleagues around the country that were on that letter that we led have done the exact same thing. Secondarily, though, a very important point to mention is we've seen asset management firms pop up now that are focused on a very novel concept, profits. Um, Imagine that, yeah. profits. <laughs> uh, they want to maximize profits for their shareholders. Wow, what, what, what a great concept. And um, which is their fiduciary responsibility to do. And so that is, I think you're going to see more of that. So we've seen reactions from uh, the financial institutions starting to hedge. We're not getting a whole loaf of bread yet, but we're getting some quarters in there, and that's good. We're moving in the right direction. But uh, also you're seeing the market react because people see opportunity because of this woke agenda that's out there, and they've created an opportunity. And hopefully they can bring us back to neutral. All we want is banks to act like banks, and we just want asset managers to act like asset managers. Just deal with, uh, you know, the pecuniary factors that you're supposed to do as an asset manager. Um, th- that's really all we're uh, we're asking for here. Shouldn't be that complicated. It really shouldn't be. Uh, there's there's such a parallel between what you just said, which is. You're not looking to impose your own politics into this. You just want these businesses that are doing business with the state of West Virginia. And just to be really clear with the the money of the people of West Virginia to be focused on profit, to be focused on on maximizing gains. Right. Yeah. There's such a parallel between that and what is certainly the view of this conservative and, and you and, and most of our conservative brethren with, say, universities. And all we want them to do is just to be objective. We don't need them to be conservative. We don't need them to be liberal. We just need to be focused on the facts and also a parallel to private business. I was in the last few weeks, I've had a number of conversations with owners of private businesses, a couple of them CEOs of publicly held companies, and not necessarily with the same worldview that you and I have, but to their credit, willing to engage in a conversation. And I keep making the point to them, which is, 
in spite of whatever the preponderance of your employees believe, you know, if 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 you're located in some place that's left of center politically, all you're supposed to do is make a profit. Yes. That's all you're supposed to do. And so I just, just speaking to these folks, I just want you to know on behalf, not just of the Heritage Foundation, but more importantly, conservative Americans, we just want you to make a profit. We don't need you to get engaged in all of this social justice warfare because actually that's hurting your business. And so what you're saying is the straight treasurer of West Virginia, you've had enough and let's just impose some common sense here. So this is going well and and it also makes me think about a question for you because you're such a student of the conservative movement that it seems as if i mean tell me if you agree riley that we're at this point finally in the conservative movement where elected officials who are conservatives you're one of them are wielding the power that they have been given and not in any certainly not in a nefarious way certainly not in an extra constitutional way according to your state constitution but you have got the fearlessness and the the courage of your convictions on behalf of the people you represent to wield the power they've put in your hands and and do you sense that there are others whether they be state treasurers or governors or other elected officials who are coming to the same recognition oh absolutely uh i i see that all the time i mean obviously a great example of that would be governor ron DeSantis down in florida you see him doing that and what I'm doing, there are several other state treasurers around the country doing as well um, in these administrative roles in their state. And why it is so important for the conservative movement, because look, if you flash back 20 years ago, we were just taking it on the chin. You know, just it's fine. You know, we're just going to keep on rolling here. No need to try to get into a heated uh, confrontation on this. But the conservative base uh, of this country, and particularly the state of West Virginia, they want people to stand up and fight. They've had enough. They've had enough of the platitudes. Let's get out there and fight. And that's what they want to see. The difference in between, obviously, us and the left on this is that our fight and the way that we are taking it uh, to uh, the left uh, in this country is that it's rooted in principles and guidance that we have instilled in ourselves as conservatives that won't allow us to wield that power in a manner that is outside of the bounds of the Constitution, which is outside of the bounds of constrained government, which is outside of the bounds of uh, extraordinary executive power. Um, so as long as you are grounded, I think, in those principles, and that's the way that you're looking at through that lens, how can we wield this power, but in a principled manner uh, that protects our people uh, and our constituents, I, I think you're in a very good place. And as I mentioned, Ro Governor Ron DeSantis, I think, is a great example of that. I agree with that. And 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 hopefully we will see more elected officials doing what you and he and, and a few others are doing. It strikes me as a fellow Southerner that perhaps that common sense response to that question comes from an aspect of your biography that is fascinating. And it is that you're a welder. Yes. And here you are, in case you're listening to this and not watching, Treasurer Moore's in a great suit and necktie, certainly does his job very well. But you would probably call yourself a welder 
before you would call yourself a state treasurer. Oh, That's what yeah. I like about yeah. you. Yeah, see, I, and I probably need to get back to that because I'd make more money than I am right now as a state treasurer, but uh, I'm sure my family would enjoy that. We're going to come back to that, Riley, because there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I started my career off as a welder. I uh, went to trade school. Uh, my family on my mother's side, they were welders as well uh, since they got to this country. And, um, you know, it... There's something so wonderful about working in the trades. It's one, it's the type of camaraderie that you build with your colleagues is very different than you do in the type of job I'm in now or any type of office because you're undertaking work that is inherently dangerous and you're dealing with individuals uh, that you're trusting with your life at certain aspects of the job. And so there's a kind of bond there that's built that I, I think is hard to explain almost at times. Uh, but it's, it's something that I've not felt since I've gotten out of the trades. Uh, secondarily, we're all kind of, you know, dealing with the same issues. I mean, we didn't talk about politics really that much. You know, it's more about kind of kitchen table issues and family and this and that. And it was another aspect of the so wonderful is that you were able to see something tangibly that you had done. It's done. Okay. I, I, I fixed this front end loader in this mine that I'm working in, which I did work in a mining operation. I went on to work at uh, a couple steel structural uh, uh, places as well. We were hanging steel in a, several different places. And myself and a bunch of other rednecks out of West Virginia and Virginia were driving into D.C. when it was getting rebuilt in the late 90s, early Man, 2000s. Man, this, this is the making of a joke. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, we were... Uh, and then I went on to a, um, um, a machine shop where we were making military parts and components, which was really cool. I was making some 50 cal machine gun turrets that were going on uh, the tripods that were going on fast boats for the Navy, torpedo clamps through CNC and uh, really cool stuff, uh, actually. And uh, I think that's really grounded me in the way that I view public service and what I'm doing and who I'm fighting for. And, uh, you know, I will tell you, there are a lot easier folks to talk to than uh, politicians many times. So uh, it, it's uh, it, it was uh, certainly it's always a part of me. I still do weld every once in a while. Um, I got some neighbors or friends that have some farm equipment that needs fixed out where I live. I'll, I got a, a mobile MIG welder and I'll jump out there and help them out sometimes still. How many state treasurers can say that? That's just awesome. <laughs> Well, from from your your welding career, although you're, it sounds like you're you're willing to continue doing that, which is wonderful. You you go on to the National Defense University, and this is when you're a staffer for the House Foreign Affairs Committee. About that time, where I'm going with that question, Riley, is I'm I'm wondering if you see, based on your common sense, your experience, but also your expertise, a connection between what's happening with the degradation of the coal industry in West Virginia, the attack on the oil and gas industry and from my neck of the woods on the Gulf Coast, and the very perverse incentive that some European leaders have to sort of look the other way when Vladimir Putin, who is the source of a lot of oil and gas for them, invades Ukraine. Not asking you to stake out a position on aid to Ukraine or you know some of the live wire foreign policy positions unless you want to, as much as I'm looking for something that I think has been absent 
in a lot of the commentary, our mutual friend and my colleague, Jim Carafano, is the most articulate on this, mm-hmm. I think, in the world. I mean, you have to account for my bias, but he's just so articulate about connecting those dots. My point is, I think you, given your unique background, probably have a pretty good perspective on those connections, too. Yeah. And actually, he was uh, one of my professors at the National Defense University uh, when I went there. Um, You know, to me, uh, look, I'm not an isolationist, but I think we do need to focus somewhat inward here uh, in the near term and immediately in this country. And I think you see the U.S. and the Chinese uh, economy decoupling at an increasing rate. But the reality is uh, the Chinese economy is decoupling from us faster than we are them uh, with their stated goal of being the superpower in 2049. So what are we going to do with that? I think there's a huge opportunity for us to reshore a lot of these jobs back in the United States. Let's say perhaps it took a thousand jobs uh, to manufacture X in China through innovations in AI and things like that, it might take 300 jobs in the United States, but because you have some automation there, you'd have the ability to pay a livable wage that would be good for the working people of this country. And secondarily, in terms of kind of turning back to the United States and making sure that we're taking care of everybody and our things here at home, energy independence is a huge part of that. The United States could be an energy superpower if we would just flip the switch. That's all we have to do. And we could be an exporter. We could be the exporter. Russia right now, I mean, there's only so much leverage you can put on them because not only are they energy independent, they are also food independent, which we could also be in this country. So they have the levers of power that a country like the United States should have. Um, you see China has built 55 brand new coal-fired power plants. They have uh, obviously constraints on the capacity to be able to produce coal there. Why don't we get in the driver's seat? Why aren't we the Saudi Arabia of coal around the world and started leveraging some of those things? And that's what I mean. I'm not an isolationist is that, yes, we should engage with the world. We should be trading with them. But the dynamic right now is that we're in the deficit. We're trade deficit with everything except for military uh, hardware and uh, parts and components around the world, which is actually because there's uh, a serious level of regulation around that and who's able to receive that. We'd be able to maintain, obviously, a qualitative edge in uh, military equipment. But uh, at the end of the day, we do, I think, need to turn inward uh, and focus on uh, us, on the United States, on Americans. Because if you don't, then you're going to end up eventually in this position where you see a lot of these Eastern European countries right now. Well, there's a lot to say in in sort of violent agreement with what you just said. And and I, I do with everything you just said for what it's worth. But the thing that strikes me is, I guess, sort of the theme of our conversation, which is that there are a lot of dots to connect here, whether in your biography or just in kind of the thread of this organic conversation. And and where I want to go next, believe it or not, is connected, even though it may not on the surface sound like it. And it is to think about one of the policies that you've championed in West Virginia. It's called Project Jumpstart. And it focuses, as I understand it, on vocational education, workforce development. Those are acute needs, 
in the United States for yes. the precise reasons you were just outlying. And, and whereas, you know, I can, I can speak for a lot of conservatives that I thought used to think globalization was a great thing. I think it may sound okay in principle, but in reality for Americans, especially Americans in places like where you and I are from, it's been devastating. Absolutely. It's been devastating economically. It's been devastating socially. It's been devastating culturally. Thankfully, it's rejuvenated our politics. We get elected officials like you and many of your conservative colleagues in West Virginia. But the point is, we have to, as conservatives, now wield that power and implement policies that address those problems. Talk to us about Project Jumpstart and, and how it does so. Yeah, so Jumpstart is a novel program, doesn't exist anywhere else in the country. And it actually came from my background as a welder. At one point, I wanted to start my own mobile welding business when I was a welder. Uh, again, probably should have gone that path, but I didn't. Uh, and, and, and Look, it, I'm just going to say, I'm glad you're state treasurer. You, yeah. can, you can weld on the side. But keep <laughs> yeah, doing what yeah. you're doing. Um, and so what this is, we have the College 529 Savings Plan, right? Everyone's pretty familiar with that program. And we've been pushing and incentivizing college six ways to Sunday for a very long time. And to the detriment of vocations and trades in this country. So what I came up with out of this experience that I had wanting to start my own business was, wow, this is really cost prohibitive. And, you know, I'd have to buy a truck. I wanted to go work on uh, different mining equipment in the area and have my own mobile welding business, but it was cost prohibitive. I didn't end up doing that. How can we get that barrier out of the way and make this more um, uh, 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 a, a, a thing that's more uh, able to be realized by the working people here in this country? And the uh, thing I came up with was Jumpstart. And so this savings program is, you can start it when you're young, a savings account, just like a 529, or at any point while you're in trade, technical school, community college, uh, or union apprenticeship is when you can start this program and or uh, start the savings account. The way it works is you can, as you put contributions into it, it stays open in perpetuity and it's for after graduation. Because that's the barrier that I was trying to get past is how do I do things after graduation? You don't need a lot of capital to go be a lawyer, right? Uh, or an accountant. I mean, you need a computer and some law books, right? So um, the, uh, the, the, the barriers there that exist for the working people is um, being able to get into that. If you're an auto mechanic, uh, you might perhaps uh, come out of auto mechanic school and have to pay thousands of dollars for tools to be able to start your job. So how do we help people get into the workforce? So this program allows you to spend money on tools, equipment, licenses, certifications, and also new business startup costs. And the way the mechanics of this works is you can uh, contribute $25,000 uh, you can contribute as much as you want annually, but up to $25,000, you can write off of your income taxes in West Virginia. Then the money invests and we have investment options, just like a 529. No capital gains taxes paid in the state. We'd love for this to be a federal program, get rid of that too. Then as the money deducts, when you take deductions, you can take up to a $25,000 deduction annually 
um, off of your income taxes as well. So you got a double tax deduction there. And we see it as you're going to have people that are going to be short-term savers that might need to buy a new vehicle because they need to get to a job site. They live in a rural area like I do in West Virginia. That's very critical for them to be able to work. They might be, you could go to beautician school and decide, you know, I want to start my own business. I'm going to buy the chairs and the combs and the hair dryers and everything else that uh, comes with uh, opening a beauty salon. And they might save for 10, 15 years to get to that dream. And there's no dollar cap on this. And there's no limit uh, in terms of the time in which you can have the account open. You go to trade school at 50 years old and open one of these accounts if you want, just as long as you open it prior to graduation. And it's the first of its kind in the country. We're hoping uh, it gets adopted by other states. Uh, there's several other states that are looking at this right now. Uh, I have had a couple members of Congress reach out and ask me about it as well. And um, we're hoping it's something that can take off. I mean, look, it was uh, something very unique that was uh, passed bipartisanly, uh, unanimously in both chambers in the House and Senate. Uh, this doesn't happen very often, but you had the trade unions endorse it. And then you had the Chamber of Commerce endorse it, uh, which I was like, wow, the trade unions are endorsing something I did. I don't, that's kind of wild, but uh, take yeah, it. I'll take it. It's a, it's a win. So um, this is just about work. We're just trying to help people get into the job uh, into the job market as it relates to trades and vocations. And it goes back to that question of your ask, uh, that you asked about in terms of international and bringing those jobs back to China. How do we get a workforce that's not just trained, but trained and equipped for the jobs of the future? And that is, this is the type of program that will allow us to be able to do that. I mean, you got folks that are coming out, graduating, becoming linemen right now, making $150,000 a year out of the gate, somewhere around there. I mean, these are good paying jobs where you can come out with no debt and be ready to go. It seems as if the more conservatives, whether they be policymakers or elected officials, uh, statewide elected officials, that is, focus on working Americans, broadly defined, the better off our movement is, and therefore the better off the country is. And what's interesting historically is that at the same time that's happening, witness what has happened politically in your state. Witness the recent congressional win by Myra Flores in a congressional seat that's been in Democrat hands for a century. At the same time, those things are happening and those are good, that those of us who are conservatives are recognizing, for example, that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, of course, is no longer our friend. In fact, they're a political opponent, that these that most of the biggest capital houses, investment firms are against us. Your efforts are helping to correct that. And, and you and I are both optimistic about the fruit that will be will, will, will be harvested as a result. But I guess the comment that I want to make and get your response is, do you sense that over the next five or 10 years, that there is going to be a realignment, so to speak? And I don't even so much mean that in a partisan way, capital Republican, capital D, or capital R Republican, capital D Democrat, as much as within the conservatism, we recognize that our bread and butter, are people in West Virginia who are hard workers, people across the country in many different industries, and we just need to embrace policies like Jumpstart to make sure that they stay home with, yeah. with us politically. Yes, exactly. I mean, and that's what we should be doing. And look, I'm not saying you need to go throw away every conservative value that you've had as it relates to labor or something like that. But look, at the end of the day, these folks are voting for us. And I think that we need to have uh, some type of dialogue uh, and see where we can meet 
uh, perhaps in the middle on some things. Uh, Jumpstart is one of those. Um, you know, obviously anybody can look up my voting record. I voted for right to work in West Virginia. Uh, I stand by that vote. But this is a program that can benefit all. Um, and I think that we have to continue to engage with the working people of this country. And I think we really need to incentivize that population to grow because that's what makes us a stronger country because a strong middle class is what makes a strong United States. We can't just have a country that is divided in between lawyers and people working at Walmart. I mean, that is not the American dream. That is not the way it should be. And we have to have opportunity out there for folks that might not want to go to college. The worst question I ever used to get and still get is you went to trade school. So what happened? Like something had to happen for me to go to trade school. We have to get rid of that stigma altogether. When I first worked on the Hill, I had folks be like, looking at my resume, like you were a welder. Like you might not want to mention that to people. You might want to just take that off of your resume. I don't know if that's a good thing to have on there. Now I kept it on. But um, and I was proud of my background in that. But that was kind of the uh, the view at the time. Right. Um, and the American people, they're an astute observer of the reality around them. Uh, you know, I think the intelligentsia here in this country don't necessarily give them uh, the credit uh, that they have to be able to observe what's happening to them in their daily lives. Um, and we can't just keep continue to be in a place where something bad happens and the planners continue to plan and the bad gets worse. So we need to listen to these people uh, and really embrace them and bring them into the Republican Party. Because I will tell you, if we do, I, I think we're going to have a lasting majority that will be around a very long time. Especially if we govern like conservatives, right? Yes. And, and so that leads me to the last question, which is one that it's sort of under the headline federalism. And I've been making this prediction for a year that the next five, 10 years in terms of, of policy innovations, hopefully there will be some here in Washington, D.C., <laughs> but you and I both know this is not the place for a lot of policy innovations. <laughs> but where we will see the greatest policy innovations will not just be in the states, which, which alone would be great, but it's going to be in states where naysayers would say they least expect it. States like West Virginia, for example. And, you know, I mean nothing by that because this is a Louisiana saying it, right? Right. <laughs> I actually mean that to celebrate it, that keep naysaying, you know, especially if you're a member of the intelligentsia in the swamp. Right. Keep saying it because we're going to prove you wrong. I think about the project you've mentioned. I think about this huge school choice bill uh, that's now yes. law in your state is perhaps the best in the country. I think it's going to be places like West Virginia that chart the way. I, I think you're exactly right. And because West Virginia had this huge swing uh, in electoral politics. We were a heavy blue state for a very long time, took back the majority in legislatures in the 2014 cycle, and we've just seen it continue to move in that direction. We're really the barometer, I think, of this new movement as it relates to the conservative movement and the Republican Party. And that educational savings account bill uh, that we got done, Hope Scholarship, that's actually one of the programs that I manage here in my office that I was uh, proud to work on and get through. It is the most expansive educational savings account uh, program in the country. Uh, it includes homeschool and charter school and uh, uh, private schools, uh, religious and otherwise. I mean, it is the most expansive. And we just passed a micro school bill here just in the last legislature, too. We are pushing educational freedom 
in West Virginia. And we're able to do that because we're coming into such large majorities uh, in 22 here this year in this cycle. I, I will lay a prediction down. I think we're going to get at least close to uh, 90 seats in the House out of 100. And I think we'll get to 28 seats in the Senate out of 34. And it will be a great place to push these new conservative ideas that we have, because as I said, we're really the barometer, I think, for this new conservative uh, movement that's happening. And by new, I mean, we got new people that have come into it. Not necessarily that new, that we're changing our values. We still uh, hold the same values, but we're bringing folks back home that perhaps kind of, you know, we're in a, in, a, in a different mindset and we weren't speaking to them. Uh, we were speaking past them or were over top of their heads, I think, for a long time. Yeah, I think that's right. And, and we need to have the courage to seize the moment. So Riley Moore, treasurer of the great state of West Virginia, thanks for being with me. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thanks for watching or listening or both. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Obviously, the treasurer of West Virginia, Riley Moore, is someone we need to follow and support and, of course, be looking forward to a lot of policy innovations from West Virginia and other states. See you next time.